The History Channel original podcast. This is Washingtonian. Survive and you shall succeed. They survived. The Brits never quite understood what they were getting into. And they underestimated the nation that had been created. It's a mistake many people have made over the years. When you're defending a piece of land that's yours, you're prepared to die for it. When the word of Yorktown reaches Britain, Lord North, the Prime Minister, says, Oh my God, it's over. From the History Channel, this is Making Washington. I'm Andre DeShields. 1783, the king will push the war as long as the nation will find men or money. Let us prepare for the worst. There is nothing which will so soon produce peace as a state of preparation for war. President and CEO of Mount Vernon, Douglas Bradburn, says Washington won't risk being caught off guard. The British stopped major action in North America, but from Washington's point of view, that might not be permanent. So he has to keep this army trained so it can respond and defend and fight if he needs to. But Washington's troops are increasingly unwilling to keep up their new country's defenses. It's been more than a year since the final battle at Yorktown, and Congress still has not paid their wages. Now they have grown restless and angry. They've been given promises for years. Some of them have been there seven, eight years long. And so what happens is you start getting a conspiracy in the ranks of the officer corps who are saying, well, we're not going to lay down our arms when the peace treaty arrives unless we're paid by Congress. And if need be, we're going to march on Congress and force them to pay us. What they're plotting is more than a mutiny. It's a military occupation of the government, and they want Washington to lead it. Historian Joseph J. Ellis says Washington would be thrust from leader to dictator if this happens. There's a group in the army that wants to march on Philadelphia and crown Washington emperor. George Washington all of a sudden is this incredibly popular superstar with an army that is loyal to him. What if he decided that he was going to declare himself in charge, that he's going to ask Congress to move along? General Horatio Gates who was formerly Washington's challenger, is now among the officers pushing for Washington to lead a rebellion against Congress. Others, like Washington's trusted commander, Henry Knox, urge caution. John Avalon, 
author of Washington's Farewell, notes how unique it is that Washington will not become a dictator. Keep in mind that pretty much every great revolution that had been run before to take on tyranny, the rebellious general soon revealed himself to be the new king and then a new kind of tyrant. This is one of the most important early moments in the Republic where things could have all gone south. Lacking a model for a more representative form of government, some of Washington's officers expect him to go along with a rebellion. Biographer Alexis Coe says Washington is well aware of what could happen if the troops' demands are not satisfied. There have been plenty of revolutions, and most of them fail. And they fail because people get frustrated. They don't know where their paycheck is coming from. These are relatable concerns that Washington is facing. Under no circumstances will Washington allow his officers to use the military to pressure Congress to collect back pay. Washington tells them, As I have never left your side one moment, as I have ever considered my own military reputation as inescapably connected with that of the army, it can scarcely be possible in this late stage of the war that I am indifferent to its interests. Let me entreat you on your part not to take any measures which, viewed in the calm light of reason, will lessen the dignity and sully the glory you have hitherto maintained. If you do what you are thinking of doing, you will be undermining the very core principles that we have been fighting for for seven years. Not only will the American experiment be killed in its cradle, but it will reinforce everyone who says that self-government is not practical or possible. Historian J. David Gowdy describes the scene at Washington's march to his troops in Newburgh, New York, in March of 1783. Quote, After reading a portion of the letter with his eyes squinting at the small writing, Washington suddenly stopped. His officers stared at him, wondering. Washington then reached into his coat pocket and took out a pair of reading glasses. Few of them knew he wore glasses and were surprised. Washington said, Gentlemen, you will permit me to put on my spectacles, for I have not only grown gray, but almost blind in the service of my country. He pulls out his spectacles from his uh, breast pocket, unfolds them, and there he is showing this uh, frailty in front of his officers for the first time. When he shows that I have aged during this time, that I have suffered too, they understand that he hears them and he is working on their behalf. Historian Joanne B. Freeman says the gesture is not accidental. Washington orchestrates this moment with precision. It's Washington playing that moment. What he does is use who he is and the symbolism of who he is to dissipate a situation. And with that, shame kicks in, a sense of shared sacrifice that galvanized the officers and reminded them what they were fighting for. Washington in the Newburgh Address is one of the very few moments in world history where a revolution in favor of liberty ended without a military coup, and ended with the rule of law. When you look at Washington at Newburgh, it's hard not to remember this impulsive young man that he was during the French and Indian War. And you think the reason that they trust him is that he has proven himself to be so steady, that he has proven himself to deliver the most outrageous win of all time. So if he can defeat 
one of the greatest superpowers in the world. He can deliver their pay. September 3rd, 1783. Six months after Washington puts talk of a coup to rest, and nearly two years after the final battle at Yorktown, the Treaty of Paris is finally signed. The war is over. Providence is a word he uses a lot to try to describe to people how we won the war. If historians ever take to writing about this, they will be accused of writing fiction because no one will believe that uh, a group of ragtag soldiers like this could ever possibly defeat the British Army and Navy. In late November, seven years after running Washington out of New York, the Redcoats evacuate the city. Within hours, hundreds of citizens are lining the streets to celebrate Washington's triumphant return. Soon after, the Continental Army is peacefully disbanded. Washington formally resigns his post as commander-in-chief. Historian John Meacham says his decision is surprising. If you had just defeated the greatest empire in the world, the idea that you would then say, okay, thanks, I'm gonna go farm and make whiskey and, and grow hemp, it wasn't done, but he did it. In England, when King George III hears that Washington has surrendered power and gone home, he replies by saying, well, if he did that, he will be the greatest man in the world. But Washington is not seeking greatness. In a letter to the governor of New York at the time, he writes, I feel myself eased of a load of public care. I hope to spend the remainder of my days in cultivating the affections of good men and in the practice of domestic virtues. He's done his duty. He doesn't assume that more is to come. And he doesn't know that there's going to be a new constitution. He doesn't know there's going to be anything called the presidency. In the years immediately following the revolution, the young country is in turmoil. The 13 states are bound together under the Articles of Confederation. But while the pact allows Congress to enact laws, it has no power to enforce them. There's no agreement between the states about how to run a government. According to historian H.W. Brands, the states did not even think of themselves as belonging to one country. All the states looked upon themselves as independent nations. They owed nothing by way of sovereignty to any higher authority. They understood that there had to be strength in union, but they never wanted the strength in union to take their autonomy away. White House historian Lindsay M. Chervinsky explains that not only was Congress unable to enforce laws, it also had no way to finance these newly united states. The country had been ravaged by war, the economy had been destroyed, and there was no national currency. So Congress couldn't raise any money to pay off its national debt. The states all turn inward, and you begin to have a variety of different kinds of disruptions and arguments and disagreements throughout the states. And really, the fragility of what's being attempted here becomes very apparent. And it looked as though the victories that had been won on the battlefield were going to be lost in the halls of politics. And for somebody like George Washington in particular, this is really discouraging because by this time he's being called the father of his country and his country's fallen apart before his very eyes. 
In a letter to James Madison, Washington deplores the situation. How melancholy is the reflection that in so short a space we should have made such large strides toward fulfilling the prediction of our transatlantic foe. Leave them to themselves and their government will soon dissolve. Will not the wise and good strive hard to avert the evil? The wise and good decide to give it their best efforts. In the spring of 1787, the Founding Fathers convened delegates from the 13 states in Philadelphia. Their mission is to construct a more effective union. Benjamin Franklin, Alexander Hamilton, now an assemblyman from New York, and James Madison all agree to attend. George Washington is undecided. This is one of many moments in which people step forward and say, you know, it's pretty important that you be there. People trust you. And so he ends up being at the Constitutional Convention. He presides over the Constitutional Convention, not because he's eager necessarily to shape things, but because he felt it was important to be there. It requires the work of four months, but ultimately, the Constitutional Convention reinvents the American government. They write a new constitution. While Washington personally believes in a strong central government with a single leader, his role during this effort is largely diplomatic. He listens, trying to create an atmosphere where each delegate can express his views. And that paves the way for Washington to be elected as its first chief executive. General Colin Powell says the founders feel they owe a debt of gratitude to Washington. The Jeffersons, the Madisons, all the others assembled in Independence Hall in 1787, and they all looked to him because he was the war hero. They wouldn't be there if it hadn't been for him. It was understood, without anybody having to say anything, that the presidency was going to be occupied by George Washington. It's one of the reasons that in the Constitution, the presidency is simply sketched in. They just looked over at Washington, said, okay, well, he'll figure it out. Washington, right before he comes president, is in the perfect position. He has done the unthinkable. He's won the revolution. He is a celebrity in his own country, in every country. The entire world respects him. He has everything to lose by becoming president. George Washington has spent decades of his life helping to create a new nation. Now at 57, he's the only man the people trust to lead it. His election to the presidency is unanimous, but it's not a role he covets. In 1789, following the convention, Washington writes to Henry Knox, My movements to the chair of government will be accompanied with feelings not unlike those of the culprit who is going to the place of his execution. Integrity and firmness is all I can promise. These, be the voyage long or short, never shall forsake me. He could have been king, but that was not him. He believed in what he was doing. It's those who really don't believe in what they are doing, who are just interested in power. He wasn't interested in power. He had power. He's so conscious of that responsibility, the power of being a president without precedent, and that he's setting a model that others will follow. What the heck is a president? Like, no one knew. He had to have enough gravitas and dignity to be seen as a leader of a nation in a world of monarchies. 
But on the other hand, he can't be monarchical in any way or kingly because people are terrified that the nation's gonna slip right back into becoming a monarchy. He writes letters to a number of people and what he wants is really basic advice like, how accessible should I be to the American people? Should I accept dinner invitations? Does the president shake hands with Americans? What kind of clothing should a national leader wear? He thinks again and again as to what he can do to prove to people that he's not some superhuman king. Tasked with defining the presidency, Washington draws on the brightest minds of his day. James Madison is a scholarly fellow Virginian who has been very involved in the process of creating the Constitution. Madison is also Washington's speechwriter, and he has unbelievable sway and trust of the president. Thomas Jefferson is a Virginian who wrote the Declaration of Independence, so he's someone who has a lot of political experience. Henry Knox had been with Washington since 1775. He had seen the army suffer. He had seen what happens when Congress can't pay its bills. Alexander Hamilton was Washington's aide in the war, and he was loyal to Washington personally. They experienced the same challenges during the war, dealing with the Continental Congress, and that really shapes their politics. Historian Annette Gordon-Reed says, Washington is not too proud to ask for help from those he respects. Washington did not have a top-flight education, but he admired people who did. He wanted the best people that he could get on his team. And he listens. While the concept of the cabinet is not laid out in the Constitution, Washington surrounds himself with what he called the gentlemen of my family, trusted advisors who would help him think through complex decisions. They don't always agree, but that's not necessarily a concern to him because he thinks that actually makes for a stronger debate, right? If there are different views, fine, have different views, and then I will consider the different views and come to a decision. In the first 150 days of his presidency, Washington works with his advisors and Congress to invent the American government as we know it today. This is an enormously productive time. Look at what they accomplished in that first year. They created the executive branch, the judiciary branch, the first tax laws. A Bill of Rights that talked about the way the government could not infringe upon other people, the citizens' rights. They set up the patent office. They strengthened a system of our economy. There's a proclamation of thanksgiving. All these things were signed in one way or another by George Washington. It is this audacious experiment. Washington and the Founding Fathers basically inspire a nation to strengthen its civic backbone. And in the process, it just creates the precedent that people can self-govern themselves. And I think we've lost sight of just how revolutionary that idea is. They also declare a new capital. In July of 1790, Congress chooses a site on the banks of the Potomac River. The future Washington, D.C. Until it's built, the government will take up temporary residency in Philadelphia. Washington's household in Virginia is run by at least a half-dozen enslaved women and men. But Pennsylvania, which is governed by Quakers, is one of the first states to commit to ending slavery within its borders. Historian Erica Armstrong Dunbar explains that Washington's move to Philadelphia means big changes to the way he's accustomed to living. 
The Gradual Abolition Act of 1780 stated that if you were a non-resident and you came to Pennsylvania, you could bring your slaves with you, but you could only stay for a period of six months. If an enslaved person remained in Pennsylvania for more than six months, they could be granted their freedom. Washington, like many other slave-holding presidents, is not willing to go without his slaves, but he's also not willing to follow the rules. And so he finds a kind of loophole. In a letter to his personal secretary, he writes, In case it shall be found that any of my slaves shall attempt their freedom at the expiration of six months, it is my wish and desire that you would send them home For although I do not think they would be benefited by the change, the idea of freedom might be too great a temptation for them to resist. Basically, they were to create a slave rotation plan. Every six months, the Washingtons would rotate their slaves out of Pennsylvania back to Virginia. And if that was too problematic or cumbersome, a quick trip across the river to Trenton, New Jersey, would basically stop the clock on freedom. You want him to take a leadership position on the slavery issue, and you're going to be disappointed as you read his correspondence. He doesn't think the way you want him to. He sees the slaves as his property that he can't afford to lose. America's reckoning over slavery is still decades in the future. It's not something Washington thinks about beyond his own convenience. In 1791, His immediate concern is a new call to arms against his government, the Whiskey Tax Rebellion. So when the nation launches, it's deeply in debt. There's no national financial superstructure of any kind. Hamilton realizes that there needs to be a way to raise money to pay for aspects of governance. He also wants to establish a standard that he can create this kind of tax and that people will abide by it and pay it. The new tax is the inspiration of Treasury Secretary Alexander Hamilton. A proponent of centralized government, Hamilton is looking for ways to generate revenue after the hardships of the revolution, and Washington has signed it into law. Washington believed a strong and coherent federal government was the best bulwark against disunion and chaos. Washington and Hamilton both underestimate the reaction the whiskey tax will provoke in the farmers on the western frontier. The whiskey tax ends up being very controversial because it hits very hard on the west where whiskey is almost a form of currency. We're not talking about big whiskey producers. We're talking about grain farmers. They pay their rent in produce, in grain, in whiskey. There weren't very many laws, federal laws, that touched individual lives. Most laws that people encountered were state laws. But this is one of those rare ones. And so does the federal government have the authority to enforce its laws? Can it, in effect, defend itself? From the standpoint of a lot of people in America, this is exactly what the British government had done. And my gosh, we're gonna have to fight against this the way we fought against the British when they were levying taxes. People started saying, we've traded George III of Britain for George I of America. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, 
you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Anger over Alexander Hamilton's centralizing economic plans is not only upsetting many citizens, it's also creating a rift within Washington's inner circle. Two of his closest advisors, Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, are quietly recruiting allies to oppose Hamilton's influence. Washington had the best team that he could get, and they eventually began to drift apart and into a rivalry. They were all revolutionaries together, but they all didn't have the same idea about what the revolution was supposed to be about. Jefferson believes that Washington always sides with Hamilton. And for the most part, he does, because they share a strong belief in central government. Jefferson is trying to flesh out the idea of creating a separate political party. They don't see it as being anti-Washington. They feel like they're fighting to preserve the integrity of the revolution. Jefferson and Madison don't assume that they're creating an organized opposition to the government. What they assume is that they are trying to save the government from people who are warping it. Despite continuing resentment over the whiskey tax on the eve of the second presidential election of 1792, Washington remains extremely popular with the public. Madison and Jefferson mount a campaign to try to undermine that. One of the things that drove the emergence of parties was to write newspapers that aimed at a particular audience. People tended to read newspapers that supported their own positions. There was a Gazette of the United States that was seen as very pro-Washington's administration, a mouthpiece for Hamilton's views. It's biased. And so at an early point, Jefferson and Madison think that we need another newspaper that has a different point of view. And they create the National Gazette. Not only does this new newspaper attack Washington's policies, his own government is unwittingly funding it. Jefferson, using his position as secretary, has put its publisher on the State Department payroll. This is obviously like 80 different kinds of shady. And his surrogate sons are the people spearheading these efforts underneath his nose. He felt betrayed. He was a man in psychic pain. And... He didn't want to run for re-election. He knew another four years could very well kill him. In a letter to a former aide, Washington complains, You see me again entering upon the arduous duties of an important office, and perhaps in no instance of my life have I ever been more sensible of the sacrifice than in the present. For at my age... The love of retirement grows every day more and more powerful. As Washington's about to begin his second term in office, he's feeling the effects of his 61 years. In particular, 
One problem has plagued him for decades. George Washington suffered from horrible dental disease. By the time he becomes president of the United States, he has maybe one tooth left in his mouth. He now relies on a contraption made from wire screws and hippopotamus ivory. The replacement teeth are not made of wood, as the story has been handed down. They are real teeth, including some of his own that had previously fallen out. We know that he wanted them to look as natural as possible. Farm animals, cows, were used. And we also know that those dentures were made from the teeth of enslaved people. Historian Dana Ramey Berry. Washington actually paid money to have teeth removed, healthy teeth removed from enslaved people to then be placed in his mouth. We know this because it's written in his account books. He would often pay them a couple of shillings for a tooth. This wasn't particular to him. People of means would advertise for teeth in the newspaper. And one of Washington's dentists did this. The dentures are terribly painful to wear. That sort of grimace on his face on the dollar bill. Angry Washington. I mean, a lot of that has to do with his teeth. Because of his discomfort, Washington avoids public speaking. But on this day, he'll have no choice. Despite the rise in partisan attacks and dissension in his own cabinet, Washington has been unanimously re-elected and is preparing to take the oath of office for a second time. He didn't want to be president. He did it because there was no one else. He did it for the good of his country. Washington's second inaugural address is the shortest ever in American history. Just 135 words. I am again called upon by the voice of my country to execute the function of its chief magistrate. When the occasion proper for it shall arrive, I shall endeavor to express the high sense I entertain of this distinguished honor and the confidence which has been reposed in me by the people of United America. His second unanimous election does not quiet the tension between his trusted advisors. Hamilton and Jefferson are increasingly at odds over issues both at home and abroad. Britain and France are once again at war, and Washington wants nothing to do with their current conflict. He was concerned about keeping a fragile nation together and worried that outside influences might come in and stir things up and make it more difficult to remain unified. He understood that if the United States became a toy in this fight between Britain and France, if the United States took sides, then it would give the other side every incentive to try to destroy the United States. Newspapers are debating both sides. People are wearing French flags, and they're gathering outside the president's house. And within his cabinet, he has Hamilton arguing for neutrality. But Jefferson and Madison said, France bailed us out. They're our friends. They are the reason we won the war. We've got to back them in this. Washington says, actually, our deal was with a king who no longer has a head. He refers here to King Louis XVI, who was deposed and guillotined that same year during the French Revolution. France is now under the control of the revolutionaries, who have succeeded in overthrowing the monarchy. 
Washington took it upon himself to declare neutrality for the United States. Washington and Hamilton, they said we need to be neutral. Because of that, they're castigated as pro-English. And this is one of the key things in American history, a fundamental dividing line that helps sparks partisan politics as we know it. American politics, American media during the 1790s were as nasty as they've ever been ever since. The really critical editors would deliver three copies of their paper every day to the president's house, even after he canceled their subscriptions, just to piss him off. But from Washington's perspective, freedom and the press came with what the American victory in the Revolutionary War was all about. He was not one who was going to abridge freedom and the press. The pressure at home is also mounting. Protests against the government's taxes are growing more violent. For three years, the people of Pennsylvania have refused to pay Alexander Hamilton's whiskey tax. Now, when federal marshals arrive to enforce the law, a mob of 7,000 armed rebels respond by marching on Pittsburgh to run them out of town. Washington's revolutionary ideals are about to face the ultimate test. It's not just a matter that there are people in Western Pennsylvania who don't want to pay a whiskey tax. The power of the government and the authority of the government is being tested. A lot of the people who resented and opposed this had been soldiers in the revolution. So they knew how to take up arms. So Hamilton encourages that there should be armed forces sent to Western Pennsylvania to quash this rebellion and really show that the government can enforce its mandates. Washington issues a proclamation ordering the rebels to disperse or face the consequences. In October 1794, nearly 12,000 militiamen from four states assembled to end the uprising. George Washington, now 62, and Alexander Hamilton are back in uniform to personally direct the operation. Think about that, he's president and leading an army potentially against other Americans, that's a quirky moment, right? We haven't since then had a president in uniform leading an army in that way. But Washington wants to show that the federal government is willing to use force. He doesn't want to use force. He wants to provide a way for the rebels to sort of back out. Awed by the number of troops facing them, the rebels send their spokesmen to meet face to face with the president it doesn't come to the kind of blows that it might have come to. And in large part, this was precisely because Washington understood the moment. He's not really treating them as enemies. He doesn't chase them down. He doesn't try to destroy them. He simply disperses them. If Washington wasn't Washington, I'm almost certain that, some, that the Republic would have fallen apart in the 1790s in its early years, as almost all republics do. Washington's foresight was to understand the power of a national government. You have an allegiance to an idea that's put forth under the federal constitution, which makes the country. Washington's whole point was that they had a special responsibility to validate the idea of self-government, that it was our responsibility collectively. It's one of the reasons Washington adopted the mantle of presidency against his personal wishes. It's why he stayed on for a second term when he really wanted to go back to the farm. But despite his peaceful disarming of the Whiskey Tax Rebellion, in 1796, after nearly eight years in office, 
the country's partisan divide is only deepening. George Washington declines to stand for a third term. He's weary of political life and even of power itself. Many people who started with him in the cabinet are now in opposition. He's seen his friends disappear and finds himself alone. He wants to go home and get away from the, the vipers in politics. When he eventually retires, Thomas Paine writes, we're pleased to see you go and ask the question whether you have simply lost all your integrity or whether you ever had any. This is George Washington. Think about that. That's what they're saying. But in the public's eye, Washington is revered as the father of his country, the man who delivered to the nation its freedom. For his part, Washington wishes to return to being a Virginia farmer. He could have served for three terms, four terms, five terms. As long as he was alive, he would have been president of the United States because of his reputation as a man who could be trusted, as a man who put country ahead of himself. People at the time understood that the main threat to a republic was a demagogue who would seek power for himself. And Washington wasn't that person. Washington himself believed there cannot be a monarch. It's hard to overstate how that and the peaceful transfer of power is revolutionary, almost as revolutionary as the war itself. George Washington's presidency ends on the afternoon of March 4, 1797, when his successor, John Adams, is sworn in. In his inaugural address, Adams, who was no great fan of Washington, sends him off with a soaring tribute. Such is the amiable and interesting system of government which the people of America have exhibited for eight years under the administration of a citizen who, by a long course of great actions, regulated by prudence, justice, temperance, and fortitude, has merited the gratitude of his fellow citizens, commanded the highest praises of foreign nations, and secured immortal glory with posterity. His name may still a rampart and the knowledge that he lives a bulwark against all open and secret enemies of his country's peace. Washington has held many titles in his long life, general, commander, and president. Now, in one history-making moment, he gets his wish to be simply a citizen. For a short time, he enjoys the peace he's been wishing for. Washington was so excited to go home. He was so excited to be on his plantation. He was going to complete the renovations to his house. Finally, he was going to be able to do the experiments he wanted to do in the garden. He ends up getting two and a half years of retirement in Mount Vernon. He deserves more than that, and he wanted more than that. Washington catches what is a throat disease. Now he would be cured with antibiotics in a matter of hours. Washington believes in bloodletting. It's considered modern medicine at the time. It's literally cutting someone and bleeding them, what we would consider nowadays a release of toxins. He's bled over and over again at his own request. I mean, it's prolonged torture. And he's not improving. And eventually, he says, stop, I'm just going. At around 10 p.m. on December 14th, 1799, Washington speaks his last words. I am just going. 
have me decently buried, and do not let my body be put into the vault less than three days after I am dead. Do you understand me? Tis well. He says, wait three days to bury me. He wants them to be sure that he's actually dead. It's such an interesting concern and worry. It maybe speaks to his need for control. George Washington dies. He is 67 years old. When he died, it was really clear that an age of American history had ended. Given Washington's symbolic as well as political importance in the founding of the nation, his death had an enormous impact. There was a huge response, enormous funeral processions and ceremonies held throughout the nation. People understood that this was the, the passing of a moment. When Washington is buried, it's at home. He wants to be about Vernon, as he always did. There are many in attendance, with one notable exception, Martha Washington. She stays in the house. Whatever existed between the two of them, their relationship, her sadness over his death, we don't know, because she didn't want us to. After her husband's death, Martha Washington destroys nearly all of the letters they'd written to each other over 40 years of marriage. There's not very many letters that exist between them. One of them in particular we know is the My Dearest Letter. It was discovered in a writing desk that had been owned by Martha Washington, kind of behind one of the drawers by one of Martha's descendants in the 1840s. In it, he writes... I, dearest, as I am within a few minutes of leaving the city, I could not think of departing from it without dropping you a line. I retain an unalterable affection for you, which neither time nor distance can change with the utmost truth and sincerity. Your entire George Washington. Martha lives out the rest of her days quite quietly. She passes from old age quite peacefully at home and is interred next to Washington. In Washington's last will and testament, he stipulates that the enslaved people will be granted their freedom when Martha dies, except for William Lee, who he gives grants his freedom right away. Lee, who served by Washington's side in the war, suffered injuries in two separate accidents before Washington's presidency. When he becomes unable to continue as Washington's valet, he returns to Mount Vernon and works as a cobbler. Lee was given the option of immediate emancipation and an annuity of $30 a year he was to be taken care of. So it's a moment where we see Washington's thoughts, his changing feelings and sentiments about slavery revealed. Now, you can say he doesn't free him in his own life, but he's the only member of the Virginia dynasty to do this. Jefferson doesn't do it, Madison doesn't do it, Monroe doesn't do it, Patrick Henry doesn't do it. And we have to recognize it as significant as the first president of the United States, as a founder that his decision to emancipate his slaves meant something. He knew, even at the time, that his mark on history would be a large footprint. And I think he was thinking ahead 
in ways that we don't necessarily think about today. George Washington had a remarkable sense that he was performing not only to lead people in his own time, but for all time. Fifteen miles north of Mount Vernon sits the capital city that now bears his name. It's George Washington's real legacy, the government he fought to create and then pass on to future generations, along with some advice on how to keep it alive. Washington's hopes for the nation he left behind are summed up in his final presidential address. The unity of government which constitutes you one people, is also now dear to you. It is justly so, for it is a main pillar in the edifice of your real independence. Washington's farewell address is a political last will and testament. This is the sum total of his hard-won wisdom, explicitly written for you. Let me warn you against the baneful effects of the spirit of party generally. This spirit, unfortunately, is inseparable from our nature, having its root in the strongest passions of human mind. And if you keep these principles in mind, you'll be fine. If you don't, there could be real trouble ahead. It opens the door to foreign influence and corruption, which finds a facilitated access to the government itself, through the channels of party passions. Cunning, ambitious, and unprincipled men will be enabled to subvert the power of the people. He laid out the warnings about how we have to protect the system we have created. In offering to you, my countrymen, these counsels of an old and affectionate friend, I dare not hope they will make the strong and lasting impression I could wish, that they will control the usual current of the passions or prevent our nation from running the course which has hitherto marked the destiny of nations. He understood that this was still a very fragile experiment, and he had no idea this is going to last 200 years. Citizens, by birth or choice, the name of American, which belongs to you, must always exalt the just pride of patriotism. I shall carry it with me to my grave that the free constitution, which as the work of your hands, may be sacredly maintained. There are very few Washington-like figures in American history. People who, they weren't perfect, but you had a sense that when the crisis came, when the winds were howling, when the wolf was at the door, you would want them in charge. Washington is the embodiment of America's self-evident truth. He is the foundingest father of them all. Adams is best read, Jefferson's most intellectually sophisticated, Benjamin Franklin is in some ways the wisest. Washington's the greatest, no question about it. Primos inter pares, first among equals. Making Washington is a podcast from the History Channel, produced by Best Case Studios. For the History Channel, Jesse Katz and Jennifer Wagman are the executive producers. 
McKamey Lynn, supervising producer. The executive producer for Best Case Studios is Adam Pincus. Suzanne Myers is our producer. Ashley Warren is the associate producer. Daniel Turek edited and mixed this episode with assistance from Max Michael Miller. Washington was originally produced by Rail Splitter Pictures for the History Channel. <laughs>